0: Welcome to Canada's most
1: irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the moving goalposts and the permanent lockdown, Justin Trudeau's assault on free speech, and who's standing up for Canadian jobs with Keystone? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. From my house arrest to yours, welcome to the program. It is great to be talking with you from my own little self-imposed quarantine. Not a government-approved hotel site by any stretch, at least not for the time being. But who knows, with the way things are going and the way governments are ramping up their efforts, maybe we'll all be put in these quarantine hotels or isolation hotels before long. I want to talk about the moving goalposts, which is... A theme we've certainly addressed on the show in the past, but one that is particularly relevant now. We have seen over the last year, it's been almost a year that we've been in the more rigorous lockdowns in Canada, certainly in Ontario and most of the provinces, actually. They all kind of went down the road at the same time about last March. So we've seen this for almost a year. And it's been interesting to see how the government has moved the goalposts on us and on itself time and time again. Of course, we famously talked about Patty Hydew's comment that border closures don't work and travel restrictions don't work. And then a few days later, we have boom, the border between Canada and the U.S. shut down. And then we go through all of the steps that we're supposed to go through with continuing increasing of the, re- of the restrictions to mandatory masks to no more this, no more that. And now here we are. Cases finally start to go down after the second wave. And yes, I know case counts are, are a little bit easily manipulated, but nevertheless, it's the metric the government is using. So we have cases start to go down just a little bit. And the government puts in more travel restrictions, despite the fact that travel is responsible for about 2% of the total cases. Travel has been a scapegoat, not an actual cause of the volume of cases that we have seen. And it's become very easy for politicians to look and say, oh, well, international flights are coming in. And I hear it from a lot of you who say, well, you know, why are international flights coming in? Well, the fact remains that there are a lot of Canadians that are abroad or exempt travelers that are allowed to come into the country. But the reality is that those are not where the problems lie. And when all of the returning politicians were coming back after their Christmas break in December, and and I said, yeah, the hypocrisy was the issue, not the actual travel. But one point that I I raised is that a lot of these destinations that people are going to for sunny getaways, like the Bahamas or Barbados or uh, Mexico is a bit different. If you look at the case counts in these places, they're virtually non-existent. A lot of these places have managed to nip it in the bud and get their cases down to single or double digits a day because they need to do that to get their tourism back. So they say, if you want to come here, you have to get a test before you come. Some places make you stay in quarantine for a few days while you get there. And then after that, you can walk around doing whatever you want in sunny paradise. So if you are a Canadian who goes down to the Bahamas, say, and you come back, you're more of a risk to the Bahamas than you are from the Bahamas coming back home, which is why travel is not the problem here. But the federal government right now in Canada has to pretend that it's doing things. They have to distract from all of the things they've gotten wrong. They have to distract from the bungled vaccine rollout. They have to distract from their inability to procure vaccines in a timely manner. And what better way to do that than by pointing to airplanes and say, okay, they're the problem. So what's happened in the last few days, Justin Trudeau has reached an agreement with the Canadian air carriers to no longer service until the end of April sunny destinations in the Caribbean or in Mexico. Anyone who is outside the country must come back and stay in a government-approved hotel. Now, I've stayed at a few hotels. Never once have I looked for one that was government-approved. But nevertheless, you have to stay in a government-approved hotel for $2,000 approximately for three days, which includes the hotel bill, your meals, and your COVID-19 test. Because yes, you don't just need to have a negative test to get on a plane to Canada. You also need to have a negative test when you land. And we are in doing this, of course, just duplicating the process that is irrelevant because at the end of it, you still have to quarantine for 14 days. So what's the point of having a negative test that keeps you in a government-approved hotel only to then have to go into your own facility at home or wherever you are and quarantine for another 14 days if you've already tested negative. So what we're doing here is we're adding duplicating layers that are actually just making the initial layer look a lot thicker without actually adding any additional measures or certainly adding any additional public safety. And oh, by the way, if you test positive when you're in the hotel, you get sent to a government approved quarantine facility, which is different than the hotel. And we don't even know what or where these things are. But the reason I, I talk about all of this is not because I miss travel. It's not about that. I do. It is about the lack of evidence and the lack of science driving decisions that are a heck of a lot more disruptive than they are beneficial to the people that these things are supposed to protect. And by the way, I mean, the fear mongering from the liberals is certainly working. One poll of Canadians said that Canadians overwhelmingly support these and 87% of respondents. Now, polling is a little bit tricky, I realize, but 87 percent is decisive, think the government should go further by banning all international travel until there are several consecutive days of reduced COVID-19 numbers. Now, what this would effectively do is strand Canadians who are abroad for whatever reason overseas. So here's the thing. Right now, who suffers from it? Canadian Airlines. If you want to go to the Bahamas, you still can, but you can't take Air Canada or WestJet. You have to go through the U.S., which, ironically enough, makes it more risky because you've added another step into the process. You've added another destination. So you're still allowed to go. Canadians are allowed to travel. You're allowed to go abroad. But the government is trying to make it so cost prohibitive and so logistically challenging that it is effectively banned without actually being illegal, without actually turning Canada into an open air prison where you can check out but never leave, as the song Hotel California tells us. So the reason this is so ridiculous is because if you are super wealthy, this doesn't actually matter to you. If the two grand to stay in a hotel for a couple of weeks is fine and you can pay for the tests and you know where you're going to get your pre-departure test, your pre-arrival test, your arrival test, your post-arrival test, and you can pay the 200 bucks a pop plus whatever other charges come along, it doesn't actually affect you. But what if you're someone who wants to visit a dying relative abroad? What if you're someone who has a job that requires you to go overseas but isn't actually classed as essential under the government's narrative? All of a sudden you have all of these hurdles and roadblocks that are not keeping you safe nor are they keeping anyone else safe and we're supposed to believe it's for our protection. And what we were told the whole way is that this is all just going to go away once there's a vaccine, once there's a vaccine. Now, setting aside for a moment the fact that the vaccine is not a given in Canada, this metric they were giving us about, oh, well, we'll have everyone vaccinated who wants to be by the end of September is just nowhere near happening. But more importantly, even if we could get people vaccinated, that isn't going to let us get out of this. Take a look at this exchange from the House of Commons yesterday. Michelle Rempel-Garner, a Conservative MP, was asking Transport Minister Omar al Gabra, and then later a follow-up question to Health Minister Patty Haidu about vaccines and about whether people who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 will still have to do the government quarantine, this test, that test, and then the 14-day. Take a look.
0: The Liberals could have put in place a system of rapid testing at airports months ago but refused this science-based approach. Canada is two million doses short of vaccines this week. Will those who are vaccinated be exempt from the Liberals too late
1: travel restrictions? The Honorable Minister. Mr. Speaker, I wanna thank uh,
0: my colleague for her question. Um, As I stated earlier, Canada today has one of the strictest rules in the world for discretionary travel. We have called a year ago on all Canadians to avoid non-essential travel. Um, We've implemented new measures earlier in the year to make sure that all travelers are tested prior to boarding the plane. And now we're implementing new measures. There is no evidence. We we still don't have information about the effect of uh, vaccine on transmissibility. Therefore, all Canadians will be subjected to these measures. The Honourable
1: Member for Calgary Nose Hill.
0: So now the Liberals are saying that even being vaccinated doesn't guarantee an end to restrictions. Canadians have stayed at home. They've washed their hands, they've worn masks, and they've sacrificed a lot. With rapid tests and vaccinations available to the world, but not to us, Canadians shouldn't have to accept more restrictions without a clear end in sight and without that type of a word salad from the minister. How many Canadians will have to be vaccinated before travel restrictions are eased?
1: The Honorable Minister. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker. And uh, I will just say this, the issue of vaccination and travel is a live one. I met with my G7 counterparts last week to talk about standardization of uh, travel, international travel. Of course, uh, my colleague is correct. We know that vaccination saves lives. The science is still unclear yet about what uh, effect it has on transmission. That science is evolving. And we will be be sharing the understandings and knowledge vaccination as it becomes clear with uh, with uh, with Canada and the world <laughs> So so again, just to put this into perspective, I'm laughing, but inside I'm really crying. The whole point of the vaccine is so that we can be safe. But even if you're vaccinated, all of these other restrictions you still have to go along with. So again, the moving goalposts, as we've said time and time again, it's not just about social distancing until we flatten the curve. It's not just about masks until we flatten the curve. It's not just about restrictions until there's a vaccine. It is a permanent lockdown, a permanent set of restrictions that is rapidly becoming the new normal. I want to get back to travel, but just for a moment, let's talk about masks here because we were getting mask mandates between the so-called first and second wave. So a lot of the mandatory mask orders that went in place were actually when cases were quite low in the summer months. And what was interesting about that is that it seemed at the time like it wasn't doing that much. And remember, the second wave came about, well, we all had mandatory masks in most jurisdictions in Canada. We'll take a look at this CBC story. Now, we talked last week about how double masking is the new thing. The CDC is telling everyone to double mask, and then it'll be triple mask, and eventually we'll just, you know, keep layering on masks. It'll be like when Joey decided to put on Chandler's clothes on Friends. You just keep putting them on until you run out of things to do.
0: Okay, buddy boy, here it is. You hide my clothes? I'm wearing everything you own. Oh my God.
1: That is so not the opposite of taking somebody's underwear. Look at me. I'm Chandler. Could I be wearing any more clothes? But this report in CBC says we'll wear masks after the pandemic, researchers predict, and they're trying to make them better. And this is a McMaster University driven discussion here where they're talking about how they can uh, develop and ramp up and soup up PPE so that people can wear them. While many Canadians may be longing for the day when masks are no longer required, teams of researchers across Canada are working on creating the next generation of masks and personal protective equipment for both healthcare workers and the public. Their hope is that if they make masks and other PPE more comfortable, safer, or easier to breathe in, there's a higher chance the general public will use some protective gear after the pandemic. Now, this is not a government edict. This is just coming from researchers. But but just take a look at what they're sampling out here. Is this how you want to walk around the full head face shield with filter, or the full head face shield with no filter, or even just the normal face shield? Is that normal? Is that something that we want to have as our life? Is that how we want to look? I said a couple of months ago when I was scrolling through some TV channel guide or whatever it was, and I saw a trailer for some show, and it was a contemporary legal drama, I think, and on the show, everyone was wearing masks. So they have normalized COVID-19 in the show. They've immortalized it as well, where that is just how people are. It wasn't a show about COVID, but it was just uh, an expectation that, oh yeah, this is just how the world is. And there's a, a very dangerous aspect of that. If we accept that this is the way the world is now, we lose the ability and the willingness to make the world better than that. And a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, it's just a mask. What are you complaining about? It's not just a mask, though. And that's the problem here. It's not just a mask. Because if we say that, well, even without the pandemic, we should keep wearing masks, then we're also going to be saying that about every other restriction in place. Oh, we're also going to have to keep six feet away from each other at concerts. Oh, we're also going to have to make sure that we can ever travel internationally. Oh, we're also going to make sure that we have to have quarantine in government facilities. Oh, we're just going to have to do this. And all of these things that are are positioned and presented to us as temporary measures become normalized and become de facto permanent solutions, or quote-unquote solutions, I guess, when they are not achieving the desired result. So the answer to this is not that we ignore everything, it's that we do what people like me have been calling for since the very beginning of this, which is focus on the numbers, focus on the evidence, allow places to reopen safely, but don't put all of these restrictions in place to make it so that it is effectively illegal to do something that is actually legal to do. In this case, we go back to the international travel. And they're already talking about, in this one story, looking at potentially domestic restrictions on travel, where you might need a negative COVID test if you want to fly from Toronto to Montreal. So making testing a part of air travel, which again, is going to, for a lot of people, make it so prohibitive or so obnoxious to travel by air that they won't do it at all. And what are the effects of that? Well, for starters, Canadians become very cooped up, and we have the mental illness challenges and and just general well-being challenges that that brings. It also decimates the airline industry right now, which is hanging on by a thread. I mean, I was an Air Canada stockholder, so so you can imagine that I'm partially self-interested when I talk about this. But the reality is that if an airline exists right now, and they're no longer able to sell international travel for whatever reason, then they can at least still hope that people might be moving around in the country. Hey, why don't you travel to Banff? Hey, why don't you travel to the Laurentians? Hey, why don't you see the West Coast? Why don't, well, Atlantic Canada, you can't really go to now. But for an airline to have to see a talk about domestic restrictions, just no one's going to move anywhere. No one's going to move around the country anymore. And the whole point is that we're supposed to be celebrating this country. We're supposed to be proud of the country, but you can't see it. You can't go anywhere. And if you are going somewhere, all of these restrictions make it so arduous to do anything that a lot of people are just going to not do them in the first place. So if the vaccine doesn't protect us, because that was what Omar Al-Ghabra said, we don't yet know if the vaccine prevents you from getting or contracting COVID-19. Well, I have questions about that. What's the point of the test? What's the point of the trials? What's the point of the vaccine? If the vaccine isn't our hope, what's the next frontier? So this is now going down this road where we are seeing that control rather than public health continues to be the focus of a lot of these edicts. And this has been true in other cases. Look at, for example, the double standards in which protests are allowed and which protests aren't. But this is only going to get worse. And when we are faced with this question of, hey, do we accept that this is the new normal? Permanent masks, permanent travel restrictions, permanent lockdowns, and permanent measures that are de facto lockdowns, like social distancing, for example. Sure, you can have a grocery store where everyone has to be six feet apart from each other, but restaurants cannot survive with spaced out tables. A concert could not be profitable with spaced out audiences. So a lot of these things would actually decimate various sectors if they were to ever reopen or basically prevent them from ever being able to reopen. Yeah, I mean, the whole bubble approach to concerts just isn't going to happen and certainly isn't financially viable. I mean, it might be good now when people are just desperate for something to do. But I say again, and this is very important, this cannot be a new normal. This is not the way life is supposed to be. And if it is, the lawmakers who have been pushing us into this new normal have to own up to the fact that they were being dishonest when they set all of these measures out that would allow us to get back to the old normal. If you're going to take the old normal away from us, just say it outright, say it clearly. We'll be back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. We've talked at great length on the program about the Liberal government's attempts to regulate online content, the things you or I or any Canadian can post online, under the auspices of curbing online hate. Now, I covered back in Ottawa, I think it would have been in 2019, the hearings that the Justice Committee held, which ultimately ended with a recommendation to Parliament shortly before the 2019 election that a law be enacted that take this seriously, that actually start regulating what content people can put online by regulating the companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google who allow people to post things online. Now, this is not about big tech censorship here because this is now government empowered and government endorsed tech censorship. So all of a sudden, if Facebook or Twitter delete something that you wrote or suspends your account, they could be doing so because they actually are worried that the government will find them if they don't. So this is actually giving more of an excuse for companies like these tech giants to censor you rather than less of one. It's not protecting free speech at all. But the whole point of this is we have not yet seen until now a definition of how the government is going to view hate or even what the mechanisms are going to be in this. In an interview with La Presse, the Heritage Minister, Stephen Gilbo, who's responsible for advancing this legislation, gave us more detail than he's given us to date. And everything I've said about why this is so dangerous has been vindicated by this interview. I'm going to read a couple of sections of it for you here. One in particular, Stephen Gilbo says that companies will be fined tens of millions of dollars if they don't. So if they don't go along with what the government's telling them to do. So as I said, more of an incentive to play ball with however the government defines it. But what he tells La Presse is that the definition of hate speech is said to be taken from the Watcott decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, I don't want to go through the whole uh, litany of of, uh, evidence that went into the Watcott decision, but it was a very significant one between Bill Watcott and the Saskatchewan Human Rights Commission, which ended up going to the Supreme Court of Canada. The decision, which was unanimous, if memory serves, was very dangerous because it focused not on free speech, but on the idea of harm and the harm that speech can cause, but not even harm that needs to be proven. One section of the decision in particular stands out. The difficulty of establishing causality and the seriousness of the harm to vulnerable groups justifies the imposition of preventative measures that do not require proof of actual harm. The discriminatory effects of hate speech are part of the everyday knowledge and experience of Canadians. As such, the legislature is entitled to a reasonable apprehension of societal harm as a result of hate speech. The lack of defenses is not fatal to the constitutionality of the provision. Truthful statements can be presented in a manner that would meet the definition of hate speech and not all truthful statements must be free from restriction. Allowing the dissemination of hate speech to be excused by a sincerely held belief would provide an absolute defense and would gut the prohibition of effectiveness. The benefits of the suppression of hate speech and its harmful effects outweigh the detrimental effects of restricting expression, which by its nature does little to promote the values underlying freedom of expression. The protection of vulnerable groups from the harmful effect emanating from hate speech is of such importance as to justify the minimal infringement of expression. Now, the backstory of this, the context of this is that Bill Watcott was using his right to free speech to speak out against homosexuality from the basis of his theological beliefs, his religious beliefs. And again, the whole point of this decision, though, is not about the individual uh, case. It's about now what's being extrapolated to everything. Whereas a truthful statement could be hateful. Belief in what you say could still be hateful. And this is something that we're supposed to accept because even if you haven't proven actual harm, the harmful effects to society in the grand abstract sense outweigh the harmful effects of censoring someone. So what the Liberal government is using is a Supreme Court decision that has no respect for free speech as its basis for a law that is going to curb online content and regulate social media companies into compliance. Stephen Gilbo says that companies can't self-regulate. He said they're never going to do this on their own, so the government needs to get involved. But what they're doing is shoehorning this in because they know two things. Number one, they know that there is an appetite after the Capitol Hill assault. And Stephen Gobo admits as much to justify going after social media companies. But beyond that, that there is also this possibility, he seems to indicate, that there could be an election on the horizon. So they're going to put this through very quickly, just in case we go to the polls this year in the coming months. But they're talking about now using a Supreme Court decision that is by its nature, placing free speech at a lower level than protecting society from this vague sense of harm. Not protecting individuals from harm, but protecting society from harm. And we're supposed to think that the government actually cares about free speech? Give me a break. We'll be back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. So Justin Trudeau and Vice President Kamala Harris yesterday had uh, their first official conversation. They spoke about uh, diversity and inclusion. They spoke about climate change. They spoke about all sorts of things, even online hate, but not the giant cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline which is jeopardizing jobs in both of the leaders countries and costing billions of dollars. The Keystone XL pipeline apparently no longer a priority which makes me wonder who is speaking up for the Alberta jobs, the Saskatchewan jobs, the effect of the Canadian economy. Very few people at the federal level. One man who has always uh, spoken up about these things and the importance of the Canadian energy sector is Michael Binion, the executive director of the Modern Miracle network who joins me now michael good to talk to you thanks for coming on today
0: oh it's my pleasure andrew
1: you know one of the things that i, I find to be the most upsetting about this is that we saw the federal government prepare to move mountains when quebec jobs were in jeopardy with snc lavalin a couple of years ago but when we talk about the oil sector which is not just alberta but it is a, a national sector very few people advocating for canadian jobs in this area
0: Yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, of course, we we do have a government in Alberta that does advocate for that, and and others uh, across the country. Um, but certainly, our federal government is no is a you know. I think we've heard the prime minister talk about the great reset, and 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 I and I noticed in the readout from the. Or from the summary of the conversation with the vice president, that they explicitly talked about build back better. So, you know, b- both both build back better and great reset slogans include a uh, you know tr- uh, include a you know leave it in the ground component and, and switching to uh, to other forms of energy.
1: One thing that I find just the most bizarre about the Keystone cancellation, which was done by executive order from Joe Biden on his first day in in office as president, is that this wasn't actually about some idea, some project that was still stuck in R&D. This was construction already began and the cross-border section, which is arguably the most contentious section of the pipeline, literally in the ground.
0: Yeah, you know, the, the one thing, and of course we haven't seen from um, the Prime Minister, uh, bringing up either the legal side of this, which is, you know, there was an approval given, there was a permit and people in good faith on both sides of the borders, the Canadian company in particular, TC Energy, uh, and the government of Alberta you know all relied on the agreement of the of the US government so mm-hmm. that there's that one side the other thing we haven't seen from the prime minister is a defense of our environmental record i mean a lot has a lot has changed since uh, the vice president was or since the president was last vice president and last in office i mean that was that was uh, you know 4 4 years ago plus and it's incredible the the environmental progress that's been made, you know, on that pipeline in particular, in the industry in general. And our prime minister, didn't, as I said, didn't speak up for us on the. Just a second, there was an agreement here, and how can you cancel it? We, not just that there was an agreement, we've already put billions of dollars into construction under that agreement. How can you do that just under a rule of law and rule of international law, internet, you know, our, our, our NAFTA agreements, our former NAFTA agreements, I think still apply to some of this. And, and, and on the other side, just a second, why would you want to do it? We've got best in the world environmental performance here.
1: Yeah, and that's, I think, the most disingenuous part of this, is that the narrative that's been put forward by the Biden administration and by a lot of the people that have been very anti-pipeline is that you get pipelines or you get environmental policy and that the two are are inherently contradictory, which I've never quite understood because ending a pipeline does not reduce demand on oil. It, It just reduces supply. But the supply has got to get there some other way. So you see tankers, you see rail, you see other means of transporting oil that are less environmentally sound than a pipeline.
0: This is, um, so we know that there's more to the motivations of people when you do see best in the world environmental performance Incredible progress on emissions intensity uh, a pipeline for the the first pipeline i think that was going to use 100% renewable energy to to run the pipeline i mean these are this this is a this would have been a you know a a world uh, world leading example of a low emissions pipeline i mean all all of if people really did care about energy you know tr- transitioning our energy systems globally to a, to to something better in the future. They 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 would want that. They would be they would be celebrating what Canadians are doing as best in the world environmental performance, reducing emissions, and not taking the best in the world off the market only so the worst in the world can sell more. And the net effect can only be more emissions. So how can they possibly where, where's the logic if we're doing this to to reduce environmental impacts, but the impact of this is going to actually be increased global environmental
1: impacts. Yeah, and I guess that's where even the narrative that they put forward as being the justification for this doesn't really hold water. But at the very least, we're we're talking about a a level of employment that is desperately needed right now. I, I mean, this is now a government signing a death warrant for jobs at a time when private sector jobs are already facing immense strain because of the COVID pandemic
0: yeah and, and i and i think we see this from the trudeau government too i i had i really had thought when the you know with the pandemic crisis which is which has affected all of us so much right the the we we would see a return to pragmatism what what's the What's the best way to solve the, you know, the, the pandemic crisis in the short term, but also to help people get back to work? I mean, this is, uh, you know, families across across the country who've uh, who've been who've been hurt, and, and and many of them many of them losing life savings, et cetera, So let, let's let, let's how do we get them back to work? And instead of a return to pragmatism, it seemed to be what a great opportunity to double down on ideology. And what a great opportunity for us to convince people to, to, um, to, to destroy an industry, to destroy a whole sector of jobs. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a surprise surprise. I would, I would go so far as to say I was a little bit shocked even that we didn't see a return to pragmatic. Uh, a pragmatic approach uh, to, and and have Canadians all come together. Let's solve this crisis together. And that's, and, and, you know, we've talked about it. We're all in this together. I mean, people meet that. We're all in this together. Well, if we're all in this together, why are we destroying an industry with world leading performance or working together with the U S government to destroy an industry with, the world-leading performance makes makes no sense. But it is an example of, you know, ideology over, over pragmatism.
1: When you say ideology, though, that is, I think, very telling because this is not just against pipelines, but it's actually a fundamental rejection of oil as a source of energy. But they don't have an alternative. I mean, even the renewables, they talk about like, oh, well, solar and wind. I mean, these are not things that are capable of doing what oil and gas are so? Is there actually a what comes next to the activists that are trying to go after pipelines?
0: Yeah, well, I I, I guess I look at it and say, well, would it be possible for one country, you know, Germany, Denmark, Canada, you know, one of the one of the rich G7 or OECD countries, say, well, we're going to go off oil as a demonstration to the world of an ideology, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, so okay, well, that 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 seems like maybe that's possible, but. If we're looking at this as a, we truly look at this, we've got a global issue of, of, of emissions and we've got a global issue of population growth and all of the all of the impacts that that's, that has on our environment. How do, how do we manage that better globally? Well, then this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. The, you know, our industry in Canada you know, are, are coming up with real world solutions that will make the global problem better and we have a government saying, no, uh, we just want to see lower emissions in Canada. We don't We don't care if that would cause higher emissions globally. We just want lower emissions in Canada. I, I wrote a paper on this, you know, that called carbon leakage when, and you know, very simply carbon leakage is when, you know, your policies at home reduce emissions here but the net effect is you, incre- you you actually just move them somewhere else and the emissions go up so it's also referred to as a green paradox but canada's living it we're 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 implementing policies like our seeming seeing seeing cooperation with the americans on canceling this pipeline we're, we're implementing policies here that may reduce emissions here but they will cause global emissions to on a net basis go up. Because as you mentioned, we're gonna that oil is going to be replaced by someone. the the U.S. refineries in that part of the world will. Uh, their other two options are Mexico and Venezuela. Does is there anybody that thinks that the environmental performance of Mexico and Venezuela is better than ours?
1: Yeah, you raise uh, I think a really important point there, and and it is interesting because we 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 hear all the time that you know what we can't have local solutions to climate change and emissions because these are are global problems. It's a global phenomena. But the reality is that countries are competing with each other even within countries states are competing with other states provinces are competing with other uh, provinces to be competitive so if a country does do this whole utopian idea take the Paris climate agreement and and follow through with those plans and and go above and beyond all that really does is allow for someone else to be the beneficiary of these jobs and it's not to say that countries should do nothing but I, I think there needs to be a lot more celebration of the point that you've raised Michael which is how much the private sector has already advanced on these issues uh, much quicker than I would add many governments have
0: yeah i you know I think the that's exactly right and you know what I would say as well is I mean I think people in industry and i and I'll count myself you know among those people, but you know some of the bigger companies Suncor cNRL et cetera. I think that they have really embraced this idea that we do need to transition our energy systems, but on a realistic basis. Looking at the global problem of supplying global energy to a growing population, they've realized that that future energy mix is going to include hydrocarbons, and which is not to say we should be against wind. Right, you know, right energy in its right place. In some places that's wind, in some places it's hydro, nuclear, uh, solar, and and as technology changes, the right energy in its right place will change as well. But you know, I think a lot of people are recognizing that solar and wind, you know, the technology is advancing quickly. We're all hearing about that all the time. What, what seems to be going unnoticed is that I think the oil and gas industry is innovating even faster. We're you know, we we under pressure to provide you know, a product that's that people have come to rely on. It's I think a, I think an excellent product from its from its just physical components and what it can do for whether making plastics for hospitals or, or compact energy for transportation. But we've been making unbelievable progress on reducing the emissions, and and I don't I don't I don't want to I don't want to ramble on here. But the other thing that's not people are not talking about is the, the some of the advances on the consumption side. So I'll, I'll make a little bit of a. Um, a bold statement just for effect here. But it's possible that oil and gas is closer to zero emissions than solar and wind. Now, I'll hmm. explain that point because it's a bit of a bold statement. Please. But the reason for that is that we're getting close to being able to ca- capture carbon. We're, we're finding ways to use CO2 as, as a feedstock for other products. So, uh, you know, um, the comp- my company and, and some other companies are getting close to zero emissions production. So, I mean, that's a whole, I've opened up a whole can of worms there, Andrew, and I don't want to ramble on. But uh, I, I think people are not noticing just how amazing of solutions the private sector is coming up to, uh, coming up with. And and, I, and I'm and i getting back to the point of ideology. I sometimes think that the people who are doing this for ideological reasons only want government solutions and in, and in fact are unhappy with the fact that the private sector is coming up with solutions and maybe even better ones.
1: Yeah, because I know that if I were to bring up the point that you just raised about some of these innovations, people are going to discount it and not even want to hear it because, oh, it's coming from an oil and gas company. And I, I've already seen just the comparisons that people make between oil and gas companies and, and others, just these big evil corporate overlords on these. But, but the reality is uh, private sector solutions should be encouraged because the argument for a government response is only if a response can't come from anywhere else.
0: Right well i mean what, what, what you know who, who's shocked that that the private sector if properly motivated and of course that goes to the, what you said some of the opponents say but if properly motivated who's shocked that the that the market and private enterprise is better at coming up with technical solutions and for for problems than the government is like who's shocked mm-hmm. by that hopefully almost no one right <laughs> but the question comes down to can you know is 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 the private sector actually properly motivated and and you know the The people you refer to are saying, well, you know, you guys only care about making profits, so why would you care about the environment? But, you know, I I would make two points there. One is that, you know, people the people that work in our industry, you know, live, you know, there's, I think, 800,000 people, 800,000 families across the country that, that rely on the oil and gas industry, either for a direct job or an indirect job. And, you know, these people live across the country. They're people just like you me people listening to this show they live in they live in neighborhoods with us so why would we think those people don't care about the environment just as much as you do and, and, and I mean these people work in our companies I know them of course they do um, you know they love to go hiking on the weekends too so but the other the other point is is that it's I think it's become quite clear and I, and I want to give some credit to the environmental movement here and, and 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 you can distinguish in the environmental movement there's those people who are Um, you know, I think genuine, and I think there's those people who are uh, only caring about ideology. But, But there's been a lot of good people in the environmental movement who've made the case for why we have to care about this. They've made the case for why there has to be taxes and regulations on some of these issues. Industry and the market are just responding to those things. We're realizing now, if we want, you know, if we want to get investment, if we want to Uh, be profitable in a new world of higher regulation and taxes. Well, we've responded to that. I don't think people are noticing just how fast that innovation is happening.
1: Michael Binion, the executive director of the Modern Miracle Network joins me. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on and, and shining the light on this.
0: No, no, great. Any time, Andrew. Thank you, for, thank you for having me.
1: That was Michael Binion of the Modern Miracle Network. Always a pleasure to catch up with Michael. Usually I see him out west, but of course I'm, you know, never getting to go anywhere these days. So I haven't seen him in a little while, but I appreciate his time nonetheless. That does it for us for today. We'll be back in just a few days with more of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada.